when things are going wrong is to have their drive to push through it, to make good of what's not. Welcome to the Fall Forward Podcast. My name is Lindsay Mamone and I am the host of the Fall Forward Podcast. What is the Fall Forward Podcast? It's an Australian-based conversational podcast with inspirational guests who have faced adversity and risen to overcome new challenges. So the reason for this podcast is that it offers you, the listener, opportunities to connect with our guests by engaging in their story, listening and learning their mental strengths, strategies, habits, and their choice of resilience pathways that they use so that they too can fall forward through adversity. Now, adversity is a big thing. We all face challenges in our life. But how do we get through that? Are we alone? Or can we reach out? Is there support available? That's really what I'm trying to push home, that at any time through adversity, there's always something there. There's always a support. There's always someone going through a similar challenge. You're not doing this alone. My fear is that there's too much spiraling and depression that leads to major consequences that impact people dramatically. Through my own experiences in life, I believe that with the right tools and the right mindset, anyone, any person can overcome pretty much anything. And that's what the whole premise behind this podcast and why I'm so passionate about sharing these stories too to you. So my idea is is that you, the listener, get to listen to these inspirational guests and they will speak about their hardship in their life but then how they've been through struggles. So please continue to listen and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Now we're active on social media at Facebook and Instagram both at Fall Forward Podcast or you can check out our website at fallforward.com.au. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I hope you enjoy all our conversations that we have. Every person has a story. Every person has the potential. Fall Forward. My guest today served in the Australian Army as a medic for seven years. He served within the Special Operations Command as a platoon medic or voodoo medic deploying in Afghanistan, and was awarded the Medal of Gallantry for his actions in hazardous circumstances whilst on operation with Task Force 637. Upon returning to Australia, he served in the ADF's counter-terrorism team, the Tactical Assault Group East, when upon discharge became an intensive care paramedic for New South Wales. Whilst working as an ambulance paramedic, he founded a business, TACMED, where he works full-time today and with his team is aiming to equip those people who put their lives at risk for others. My guest today is Jeremy Holder. Jeremy can be found at techmedaustralia.com.au or on Instagram and Facebook at TechMed Australia. Jeremy, welcome to the Four Forward Podcast. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Awesome, mate. Thanks for taking the time for, for this conversation. I know, and we've obviously had drums trying to catch up, so yeah. I know how busy you're going. So, mate, we'll get stuck in, into yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, how did life begin? Uh, for me, 35 years ago, yep. started. I, I was uh, born and bred in Perth and um, yeah, grew up in the sort of northern suburbs of Perth and then uh, and until I was 17, then I joined the army and then brought me over 
the east coast and then i've just been moving around the east coast for the last sort of 17 18 years since joining the army so 17 yeah how do you make that decision apparently since i was two years old or whatever you know as soon as i could talk it's what i wanted to do so it was uh it was an easy decision i was just almost waiting for the for the time to finish high school to go straight in yeah and then at 17 when they said oh you're in but you've now got to fly to the other side of australia what was that like i was stoked mum not so much but (laughs) i was uh you know that because they had i was under 18 so they mum and dad had to sign the papers yeah um but for me it was an easy decision like it was it's all i ever wanted to do so it was an adventure you know you haven't really got any fear at that age so really excited to get over there and And did you you went to sydney uh if you do boot camp at kapuka so Mm -hmm. wagga Mm -hmm. so you go i think six or eight weeks or something at wagga Mm -hmm. and then i went to the medic school which is in bonagilla on Mm -hmm. the albury wodonga border and then spent 18 months there doing my medic course to what months yeah maybe nine months those days okay yeah yeah and why medics well originally i went to join up to be all i ever wanted to do was be infantry then be a cop okay so in year 11 and 12 i wasn't doing they call it tee in wa i think they call it hsc HSC, yeah so you had a choice in perth whether you wanted to do and i didn't because i just wanted to be a grunt and then be a cop Mm. i chose not to do tee Uh, so one day a week we'd do career career i forgot what they call it but you'd go do work experience one day a week and there was a really old school highway patrol copper sergeant mm. at my local surf club. Mm. And so one day a week, he got me on patrol with highway patrol with w in, in Perth. So for year 11 and 12, one day a week, I'd go out, literally be a highway copper and me. Um, you definitely wouldn't get away with it these days. Yep. But uh, I don't think you could even get away with it those days But because he was just who he was. Pretty just, school, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when I went to join up as a grunt, I found out I was colorblind. Wow. And so I couldn't be a grunt. Okay. But I enjoyed the first aid from life-saving. Yep. Um, and that was the only way that I could get out to be on patrol. Yep. So it was just kind of married up those two mm. sort of things of enjoying the first aid medical side and then being out to go on patrol with the guys. And um, thank God I'm colorblind. So I'm really colorblind, you can't yep. see... Yes, there's a red-green yep. sort of colour that I can see. So if you, the way that I put it, if you put a red golf tee yeah. in the grass, like, I'd struggle to find it. Can't say it looks yeah. like grass. Yeah, port and starboard markers at a distance yeah. kind of look white to me. When you get close, I can differentiate the red and the, the green. Yeah. But at a distance, they both look white to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well. But that's the only thing. And it, it's hilarious because as a medic, everything you use is colour-coded. So all your needles, all everything's coloured. So how are you fumbling your way through that? Which well, that's fine. Like I've never had. It just meant no difference. Yeah, to you. yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I've killed anyone because of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's never. It's you know, it's funny. You couldn't be infantry. You couldn't yeah. carry heavy things, stay up late, and shoot things. But you, you could, could be a job that everything you use is. And the most life. ironic thing is the medics test everyone else for the colour blindness. So <laughs> it. Uh, it's weird, but I'm glad it happened because yeah, it obviously yeah. changed my career yeah. for the for the best. I think so. So the training that you did, like how intense did that training get? Oh, the medic school's not. In, in regards to the medics, it's mm. not really intense. I mean, because it's such a long course. 
um, there's so much didactic theory because mm. um, you do um, you do your cert for a diploma in nursing and most of your diploma in the paramedics and then all of the military medicine. So it's not most of it's kind of that nine to five and then study. So it okay. wasn't um, it wasn't too full on at all. Yeah, really. Yeah, and then when you found out you couldn't be a grunt, yeah, how did you take that? I was devastated because yeah. it's all I'd ever wanted to do as a kid. Um, devastated but then as I started to you know you can't get too stressed about things you can't change I can't change that I'm not colorblind so you know once I got over that initial grieving period and looked at what you could do as a medic you know you can still go and support the SAS and the commandos and infantry battalions and whatnot so for me it was a once I got over that grief and then there's the medical component as well as doing the army stuff like it was yeah, I was pretty happy. But even for that, like been seventeen, been knocked back, and you said, yeah, since the age of two, you've been aiming for yeah. that. So I know you said oh, I just like eventually got over it. Do you mm. remember how you got over? No, I think it was just education. You know, look, one, just again researching all the things you could do, yeah, and the roles that they do. Once I'd looked a lot deeper, because it'd been nothing. I, I I didn't originally explore that idea. It wasn't something that was on the cards. Sure. It was only after the recruiter said, these are the jobs you can do. Okay. And the stuff was like storming, uh, dental assistant, um, just really boring jobs that to me wasn't what being in the army was about. I yeah. mean, those roles are incredibly important because the army can't, you know, needs lots of different support people like medics to, to run. Yeah. Um, but for, it's not what I wanted to join the army for. Sure. So you still wanted the high adrenaline and everything like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to be out in the field. I wanted to be shooting. I wanted to be blowing up things, you yeah, know, yeah. what most young <laughs> dudes want to join the army for. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. And then so you started doing your training there. Yeah. And then is there a, like a level of degree that you have to get to or competency-wise? Is there extra training? Yeah, so it's changed now. But the um, I suppose when I joined in 2001... You was a nine-month medic course, and you'd come out as a basic medic, and you'd have to work under supervision for 18 months for more senior medics, and then you'd go on and do your advanced medic course, which was a further four months, and then you were completely qualified to then go out and work solo from there. So that would have been about 2002? Yeah, so 2000... Yeah, 2002 or 2003, I did my advanced course. So I got posted up to Townsville to a field hospital um, and then did my 18 months up there and my advanced medic course Mm -hmm. and then did a further six months up there and then was posted to 4-Hour Commando. So what was it when you're in Townsville? What was that like going to a hospital like that? I hated the job Mm -hmm. up there in the unit, but I loved living up there. Living at Townsville was amazing for a young, for an 18-year-old kid to be... Um, to living up there, it was just an amazing lifestyle. Yeah. Um, you know, you're on your you're on the piss every <laughs> every Friday Saturday night. But then we were full driving, rock climbing, mountain biking, kayak. Like it's just so much adventure, outdoor stuff, and yeah. I loved that. So mm-hmm. between a young, you know, young eighteen guys, eighteen year old suddenly being on seventy thousand dollars a year from school, yeah, living by yourself, yeah. doing in the army with you know a bunch of older guys as well as you know mentors in brackets you know they'd uh we just had a ball i had a ball i found the work at the field hospital quite boring was that 
because you it's a field hospital is designed to deploy overseas in a large force to support battalions so hundreds of soldiers so you've got a mini field hospital so obviously back in those that time we didn't really have a lot going on Mm. timor was was happening but not enough for a whole field hospital to go so you'd be sitting around large sheds just making sure everything's still in date checking items Mm. and um, it wasn't until I did my advanced course where you could work that I'd then go off and support all the infantry and cavalry regiments and things like that. So is that when you went to come down to the SAS, you said? Oh, no, I stood about six months up in Townsville qualified. So um, at the time it was one and two RAR mm-hmm. and then they had a um, an APC, 3-4 CAV, I think it was. So the APCs so and the combat engineers. So mm-hmm. we would sort of support their medics and, and whatnot as well. But I did about six months of that before being posted down to the commandos. Okay. Yeah. And then how did you go moving down to the commandos? Good. I mean, that was a probably that was a big change going from Townsville, which is I think a hundred thousand or so people, mm. to Sydney, where I'd never lived. So yeah. um, that was a big change in itself. Um, and then, then from there, just the just the culture and change of going from um, force command wider army to special operations was was a huge change in in culture and just everything you did was you know when i got down out there's exactly what i joined for like it was just in my element yeah so you preferred it down here oh yeah Yeah. yeah. sydney was just amazing as a uh, as a medic so we like i wasn't a qualified commando we were there to support them but you're you're an asset down there so you're you're used as you know you're welcomed into the platoon as a support member and so you know we had to do all the the special forces weapons courses um had to do the parachuting you know the roping and things like that so um and just everything they did was just you know everything was to a you know you had a role and they were so professional about what they did and really driven um and you also i mean you worked hard but then you also played hard Mm. as well so it was a it was a great environment yeah, to, yeah. for for a young twenty year old or so, twenty twenty one. It was just amazing. Plus, you were getting to do the stuff that you'd been told previously you couldn't do. Yeah, all their training and everything. Yeah, I mean everything I'd wanted to do. You know, as a young kid, you know, uh, you had those dreams of joining SAS, yeah. and uh, you know, so those dreams pretty much went out the window with the color blindness. But as a medic being attached to them, you could still do so much of the. The, the activities of the parachuting and the roping and the you know, multiple different weapons. Yeah. Um, and for me, on top of that, the medicine, which I just loved. Mm-hmm. What was it that was drawing you to the medicine side of things? Um, I don't know, to be honest, Lindsay. The, which is funny because as a kid, you know, I suppose around my daughter's age, I just couldn't do blood. Yeah. Uh, and I think even as an early teen, like, you know, blood, vomit, I just couldn't, wasn't a fan of. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure what changed. I think maybe joining surf, like the surf club at 15 and being exposed to that on the weekends. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. So up until that point, even when you're down, um, training with the the new guys, had you seen much trauma? No, no, not at all. Like, you know, even on the beaches, I didn't, there was no cardiac arrest or drownings when I was on patrol. Um, you know, just some minor fractures and minor cuts and break, like, no, nothing really. Yeah. No major trauma. But you dealt pretty well with those regardless. From Yeah, from going in. I suppose at the medic school, once you get there, like you know that's your job to do. So it's, you know, you're training to do that medicine. 
um, you're studying it, you're, you're doing simulations. Um, and the way I tell people is that, you know, I don't want anybody to get hurt, mm. but if they do, I want to be there. Mm. So it's, it's like, you know, if you train to be a professional, um, you know, professional footballer, yeah. but never get to play an A-grade game, it's the same thing mm. as a medic. You know, you, you know, you train, you want to be able to do those things. And, and I think that's the same as regular army. Mm. Um, nobody wants war, but you don't join the army to stand around a base as well. So... You know, you kind of want to go and do what you were trained to do. Mm-hmm. And were you nipping at the bits to be sent overseas? Oh, for sure. As soon as the deployment started, especially Afghanistan, yeah. like we were just almost fighting to get over there, mm. for sure. Yeah. So how long distance or time-wise was it for when you actually got the call up? Um, so I was the third rotation okay. on when we first started. So... That was 2005 we started going over there, yeah. and I went over there in April 06. And before you went over, were you hearing the stories about what was happening? To a degree, yeah. um, but even then, it was the, the early days, it was a small task force over there, so mm-hmm. there wasn't a ton of information coming back sure. to us. And obviously, we had, um, I think we had a six or eight week pre-deployment stage as well, where we were gearing up. Yeah doing all the training to pre-deployment to go over there. So you'd start to get more intelligence briefs and things of what mm-hmm. was happening and what your roles might be. But, um, you know, thinking back for it, not not as much as, you know, the, the biggest learning curve was when we first got over there and you start going out on the um, baby patrols. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so once we got over there, you know, you flew in and mm-hmm. then um, we got handover. And I actually had to go over there a little bit early yeah. than what I was meant to. So I went over there before my platoon because the medic that I was taking over, yeah. um, he got quite sick right at the end of the patrol, mm-hmm. uh, the end of the deployment. Um, sick enough where they had to medivac him back. Wow. Um, yeah, poor. He was just poor bastard. Like it's, um, Food or? No, he had a, like a viral meningitis. Yeah, geez. Yeah, so it was something completely just random. Yeah. Um, so... I had to head over there earlier, so uh, earlier than what I thought. So yeah, for me, I just when I got over there, they were kind of wrapping up their last patrols. Mm. Um, so I had a little bit of time, but it was yeah, straight down to the field surgical teams. It was very surreal flying into a new country, um, to a war zone, and then you're down in a trauma bay, like yeah. a, think of a modern mash, and they're just you know they're bringing in civilian and civilian casualties and whatnot and yes throw straight in the thick of it yeah and yeah. i mean you said before you hadn't seen much trauma and now suddenly you're thrown into that like no so i mean even even once i'd qualified as a medic mm. up in towns i mean i did ride like lots of ride-alongs with the queensland ambulance service yeah um i'd done some ride-alongs with new south wales ambulance i've done lots of placements in emergency departments and whatnot um, but you're always there really as an observer or another set of hands. Okay. And even then, you know, it's like you, you've got large teams of people, whereas mm-hmm. a medic, you are the sole medical provider. Um, so, yeah, it was a huge... I hadn't even then had a huge amount of exposure to lots of trauma because even mm-hmm. on an ambulance in Sydney, mm-hmm. you're not seeing trauma, multi-trauma every day. Correct. Yeah. You're just not. Yeah. Um, whereas war, that's pretty much all you see. Sure. So yeah. you've moved to a foreign country where you know there's war going on yeah. without your team and now you're exposed to this stuff that you haven't seen. Yeah. Was that a whirlwind when you first went through? No, like it was, I think it was a little bit surreal. Yeah. But... Um, Did the training just, just kick in? Yeah, I yeah. think so. And it was just adventure. So yeah. it was just... 
um, you know, you're running on a bit of adrenaline and, mm, mm. um, yeah, I mean, I just recall loving just, just, a, you know, it's a huge amount to take in mm. and just really enjoying it, you know, being there going, shit, this is what I joined for. Yeah. Yeah. So constantly you felt the adrenaline going? Not constantly, but yeah, definitely lots of adrenaline mm. because you, you know, they'd, um, you'd get a call up and they'd say, you know, the, the helos are bringing in some, um, prior one category a patients and you'd go down there you know, yeah, yeah yeah so yeah. they need urgent surgical care yeah, so yeah. you'd you know you'd jump in these little cut down russian cars that we some that we had on base you know would fly down to the, the surgical bay and you'd meet the helicopters and they'd just you know you'd pull three or four bodies off a helicopter in all types of conditions and you'd throw them in a humvee ambulance and take them to the trauma bay and then you're working on them and then you take them straight into a field surgical hmm procedure and it was just um you know so yeah you're running a high adrenaline for sure sure yeah sure yeah and then even after you started getting more and more involved in it um, um, did you lose patients oh yeah heaps How'd yeah you heaps. With that? i mean t- thankfully i'd never lost I'd, i never um had any of my guys any australians sure. killed yep. a bunch of them injured but never killed because yep. i was very grateful for that yeah yeah, yeah. definitely because even that i mean as you'd be aware that would play more of an emotional role connection Oh, for sure. When yeah. you look at it, like the emotions of medicine, like, you know, 10 years on the ambulance here in New South Wales, like I never once out of the thousands of patients I treated, um, never once did I go to someone I knew. Yeah. I think there's maybe one or two patients that um, that I treated that had some form of connection with my friends or something like that, mm-hmm. but never that I personally knew. Whereas as an army medic, you're deploying with guys that, you've known for years mm. intimately, you know, you know their their wives, their girlfriends, their kids, yeah. maybe their parents, like, and you live and breathe with them. You're on the piss with them. You're yeah. training with them. Like, they are your brothers. Mm. So, it is totally different when one of those guys get injured or killed mm. compared to working on an ambulance where yeah. you're not, you have no emotional connection mm. to mm. the people you're treating. So, what was the time like in Afghanistan? Uh I mean, now that I'm married with kids, I wouldn't be in a rush to go back there. Mm. But I mean, I loved my whole deployment. Sure. Like it's, I recall now, you know, because it's been 13 years since I deployed, and I certainly recall near the end of my trip, you know, we'd had, um, we'd had a bunch of guys wounded. We'd had a lot of close calls. I'm pretty certain I'd used up most of my nine lives, and there's starting to be an increasing threat of the improvised explosive devices (IEDs). Um, so I recall near the end of the trip getting a bit cagey about the IEDs. The gunfights were fine because we were better equipped, better trained, and every time we were in a gunfight with them, we'd beat them. Mm. So all of us loved being in the gunfights, mm. but roadside bombs, you can't, like, how do you combat that? How do you fight that? Yeah. It just comes down to if you're in the right place. Mm. the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. So I do recall near the end of the trip getting a bit cagey about the IEDs, um, but the rest of it, no. Like I, I, I want to go back yeah. to that cagey yeah. um, feeling that you were talking about before, but you mentioned something and you touched on it. You said, I pretty much used up my nine lives. Yeah. Can you talk through some of those experiences? Yeah, we just had, um, you know, like I was there for almost five months. Yeah. Uh, for the first half of the trip, we, you know, just in little intermittent gunfights near the end when we got into the, the the i suppose the middle of the fighting season over there so summertime it really started to ramp up and we we're doing lots of operations 
um, certainly some of the operate like Op Perth, which is pretty widely, um, you know, information available on the on the web. You know, we started at one side of a, a valley and over ten or so days made our way through the valley, just clearing all the buildings, looking for medium and high value targets. And uh, yeah, you would have seen big gunfights. Mm. Just most, you know, for a lot of that time, uh, we'd go through during the day and we'd be in gunfights, and then we'd go up into a Overwatch position, and then the SAS would go through at night. And so it was just this rotation between us and the SAS going through clearing um, villages and whatnot. And um, yeah, so we're in lots of gunfights. So, you know, all the time you'd have RPGs being shot at you or machine guns or the occasional sniper. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was just... And was that the worst, having the sniper or knowing that he was around? Oh, I always, you know, made you... If, if there was talk about a sniper, it wasn't just a villager that had been given an AK-47, you know, it mm. was... If they talk about sniper, then you're thinking it's someone that's a little bit more trained, and that's what you sort of worry about mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, but no, generally, if it was just the IED threats for us, that was... Sure. Yeah. And then when you started seeing your mates get injured... Yeah. Yeah. How did you go responding even to that? Initially, at the time, you just do what you have to do, mm-hmm. and adrenaline really gets you through. Um, but yeah, looking back on it, um, you know, it was quite like far out. Imagine the what ifs that you'd, uh, you'd so you'd start to think a little bit about that. Mm. But at the time, I, I think your training and the adrenaline just would get you through mm. um, the job. And without sure. name, obviously naming their names, can you talk about any experience you had where you were called in to actually go, all right, hands on medic style because someone has um, gotten in a really bad way? Um, yeah, I mean, we were, we were called down to a, um, we were in a pretty big gunfight and the Americans we were working with had, had a, one of their sergeants killed um, and they were getting hit pretty hard. So we went down to back up some Americans. Um, as we were sort of getting near their platoon headquarters, um, we were ambushed by an, a volley of about five or six RPGs that airburst above our um, platoon headquarters. Um, and so everyone around us was, was pretty, pretty fragged. So about, I think we had six Australians in our interpreter. Um, fragged, so I had to treat all, all sort of, all those guys with the help of the combat first aiders, um, and that happened over a couple of hours before we were able to medivac them yeah. back to the back to the base. So, um, you know, retrospectively, like they were sort of incapacitated at the time, um, but not thankfully not critically critically wounded. Yeah, so yeah. very, very lucky. And then even just obviously dealing with the frags, like what injuries were you actually dealing with? Um, just frags in arms and yeah. legs. Um, and the guys say, you know, it's just a bit of shrapnel in the leg, but it's still moving at a high space, so yeah. speed. So there wasn't, a, you know, they they weren't, um, there was no real life-threatening bleeds at the time. Um, but, you know, a lot of, a few of the guys couldn't walk because of the, the, the pain um, the guys fragged in their arms couldn't hold their weapons because of the pain um, and the swelling and whatnot. Mm. So there was some bleeding, but nothing. Sort of and, and was the gun battle still going on? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we were after the the RPGs were just the start of the ambush. So from there, they followed up with all the machine gun fire. And I know it's in hindsight now, but were you scared at the time? No, not at the time. Mm. No, not at all. Um, because they're your mates, so mm. you do whatever you... And that was my sole job. Yeah. So, you know, my, my only job was to make sure that I tried to keep those guys alive. So, um, 
yeah, I don't know. You just, you just, you just did what you had to do. Like I didn't, there's no second thought. Um, there, there is a photo floating about. I don't know where it is, but I, there is a photo floating about that, that shows me sitting next to, like leaning on a wall about four or five hours after the incident. And that you can just see that I'm physically and mentally fucked yeah. after that, you know, all the adrenaline starting to wear off. Mm. Um, but yeah, at the time, no, you just do whatever you had to do because they're your, they're your brothers. So yeah. Yeah, there was no second thought. And was that what you got the, the medal for? Of going through? Yeah, for that particular incident, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. What did that feel like to actually receive an award for? Uh, I still tell people that I think they got my name wrong because I <laughs> like I, I don't think I did anything different than any other medic in my position wouldn't have done. Sure. Um, and then when I look at that incident compared to what um, like a bunch of the guys in my platoon were doing on ops and, you know, Brett Wood, mm. um, who was unfortunately killed on his next rotation um you know what he got his medal for gallantry for is you know in my eyes far more gallant than anything i did so um you know comparing to all those guys yeah i still i I was just doing my job yeah 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 absolutely so if we go back to something you said before you said definitely towards the end that you started feeling a bit cagey yeah yeah can you explain that yeah i mean uh, for I suppose for the first half to three quarters of the trip, you'd get excited and look forward to going out on outside the wire on yeah. patrol. Uh, and I'm certainly not speaking for everyone, mm. uh, but for myself, there was a lot more threats becoming. So it started to get a little bit similar to Iraq, where there'd be more suicide um, bomb vehicles and roadside bombs and the IEDs, and the threat become more and more. And you know the our colleagues. Um, in the SAS, they they hit a road um, a roadside bomb on one of their vehicles. Thankfully, it only partially went off, and that's actually the vehicle that's at the war memorial wow. now. So um, I remember watching it getting carried under a Chinook helicopter back to base, uh, and hearing the event on the radio. So you know that made it really real, and we were starting to see more and more people at the field surgical team come in from stepping on IEDs and mines. Mm. Um, so it become, the threat was getting greater and greater. Um, and so that was just something that we couldn't, you couldn't predict when it was going to happen or you just never knew if it was going to be that one footstep, mm. 10 centimetres to the left, you're going to step on something and blow up. Then there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as the only medic on patrol, like you'd think, well, who the fuck's going to look after me? Yeah. So you'd, so near the end there, yeah, I was definitely getting not so much about the gunfights, but very much about the the IED threat because it was nothing I could do could change weather. Were you prepping yourself before you went out on patrol? Mentally? And yeah. No, no. Like it was just, you know, it's just always in the back of your mind, mm. like back of my mind. Um, but then again, you know, there was nothing I could do about it. You know, I could... Fo- when I say that, I mean, I, you'd follow the advice of the engineers and you, you know, you try to walk in the same line as every, so there's things you could do to try and mitigate it. Mm. Um, but sometimes if it's just, you shit out of luck, you're out of luck. Yeah. Like if you step on one. Yeah. 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 And then seeing the injuries that were coming into the hospital, were they getting worse towards the end? No, I mean, IED injuries are completely different from gunshot wounds and stuff. Yeah. We, we've seen guys that were shot who would walk in. Okay. But IEDs is, is generally multi-trauma. So you've got, all the shrapnel, then you've got the burns, then you've got the broken bones from percussion. So you've got, 
you know, it's just horrendous injuries from from the IEDs and, the, and some of the landmines. Obviously, they design them to maim and not kill. Mm. So if you, you know, if you just amputate someone's legs and burn the other leg, then it's going to take a lot of guys to look after that person and carry them around, and it psychologically fucks with the rest of the platoon. Mm. So that's why landmines are designed to maim and not kill. Mm. So. You know, you do Even see the, some of those. And those two words you just said, like, their landmines are made to main, not kill. Like, yeah. What's your thoughts, obviously, on on, on being that horrendous? Um, obviously, not to the extent of killing the person, but yeah. like you said, stuff. Well, I mean, the there's a reason why they're not in the Geneva Convention, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, it's, yeah, so all of the countries that follow it don't don't make those. It's the non the countries and people that aren't following Geneva Convention that make them. Yeah. Mm. And the guys, when they were getting to your hospital, had they been tourniqueted by that stage? Were they still heavily bleeding? Where was No, mo- most of the time they would come in and they would be, they would have a, the most of the time the bleeding would be controlled by the time they got it, got to us. Yeah. 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 And then what about on the operation cycles? Is there stuff that still stays with you um, that was over there? Um, oh, there's, you know, there's definitely patients I can recall like mm. it was yesterday. Some mm. of the jobs we went to, um, you know, the, whether it's the first um, patient I had to treat out in the field, um, who was a Taliban that we'd shot, I had to treat him, mm. um, and then yeah, just some of the people we treated, and the kids, the kids are something that sticks in, yeah, sticks in my mind for sure. So we play on those two, but even the um, oh, you've gone over there to fight the Taliban, yeah, and then something you like, you said your first, well, that was your first patient. The first patient I treated out in the field, yeah. It was the Taliban's. Yeah. What yeah. was that feeling like? Oh, you know, none of our guys were injured, so I didn't have uh, I didn't have to make that decision whether I had to treat my guys or him first or, you know, triage equipment or anything. Like, mm-hmm. he was the only casualty. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those, you know, for me, it was he was a patient. Mm-hmm. Just treated him like any other patient. I didn't have to like him. I mm-hmm. just had to treat him humanely. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the thing for me is that, you know, the, you know, did he want to fight or were the Taliban forcing him to fight? You know, were they threatening to kill his family if he didn't fight? Like, mm-hmm. you know, has he made a decision willingly to... Like, that's not my decision sure. to, to judge. So, I just treated him the same as... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, whether if our guys were injured at the same time, like, I probably would have treated our guys first. Yeah. But, um, you know, like I didn't have to make that decision. So. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about, obviously, the horrendous side of and dealing with the children. Yeah. Yeah. Was it pretty much the same injuries that you had seen from the adults as far as the IEDs and the explosives? Or? Yeah. So, mainly IEDs. And, and, and look, some of the kids were just collateral of, of war, you know, like with really old unexploded ordnance from like Russian days and mm. things like that. So... Yeah, some kids just unlucky. Um, we had one teenager who was severely burnt, um, who ended up dying. Um, but the the intel was he was making, a, helping make a bomb for us. But he was in his early teens as well. So mm. how much you know? Sure. And and obviously seeing that does does that flare emotions? Um, for the kids being injured? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You think, uh, you know, I didn't have kids at the time. I think I, that would have been a completely different perspective. Yeah. But even at the time, you're like, man, these these kids are so young. They're mm. like, what type of life are they? They only know war. Mm. Um, 
and you think, and we've seen kids with, uh, you know, you've probably seen it in, in policing, but like the kids, the domestic violence with the kids and stuff as well. Like when we first come in, these kids were coming in with severely burnt feet and then they just have these really bad burns on their ass and genitals. And it, like I couldn't work it out until one of the surgeons said, oh, well, to punish these kids, the parents dip them in boiling water. So their feet go into boiling water. Gosh. They lift up their feet and their legs because they're burnt. And so next they get their bum and their genitals burnt. And that's how they were. So these kids were coming in with horrendous burns. And it was like, the first one I thought was an accident, but then we seen two or three and we're like, What's get like in it? So looking at that, you're like, man, this what what hope are these kids got? Like, yeah, yeah, and and little, and it's showing them violence versus violence. Oh, and all they know is violence. violence. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And yeah so. how, how do you like? How did you even mentally walk away from something like that when you when it was your time to come back? It definitely gave me a new perspective, you know. So you'd come back and you know you'd see kids crying in the shops because they couldn't get a lollipop, and you're like, well, what the hell is that? Kid? The kids know nothing, you know, but. Mm. Uh, I didn't have kids at the time, so, Mm -hmm. you know, kids are kids sometimes. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I think, am I fucked up because I'm not fucked up? Yep. Because I've never lost a night's sleep over any of that. Mm. Like, it's never... um, I know you've mentioned... Never played a mind. You've mentioned that to me before. How? how, Yeah. uh, First of all, just how? Yeah. How do you think you went through that? I don't know. Like, you think, you know, is there part of your training? Is Mm. it... Your, your internal coping mechanisms and the way that you do hot debriefs and you talk about it with your mates, the black humour, um, or is it that some people it's just in their DNA that I don't know. I would don't you know. go through after like a obviously an eventful um, day or whatever it was? Would you go through a shutdown method where you were trying to debrief yourself or, or? you'd talk over every job like straight away especially the medic work. You'd talk with all the other medics and the doctors and you'd go over the job and you'd debrief. You wouldn't bottle it in, you know. You'd talk um, for the first uh, for the first few months of the deployment. I was journaling a little bit yeah. as well, um, and then I think when I'd walk out of the resus bay and things like that, or back from patrol, you know, you'd clean up, you'd go to the gym, good feed, like I'd listen to music. I don't know, you just have a way that you'd, you'd sort of wind down for yeah. sure because you couldn't just go smash a few beers. Mm. Um, so yeah, you'd have a, a way and you know, you'd want to keep fit so you'd always working out over there and things like that. So yeah, I think that was just the way that I was able to cope. Yeah. But then I seen guys who are way tougher than me, like way tougher. Um, and when they come back, you know, they you know, the black dog got them, you know, like they would mm. they would sort of succumb to the PTSDs and it was just you know, and guys you'd never pick. So who yeah. I, mean, I suppose if I had an answer I could be a really rich guy. But yeah. um <laughs> Were they doing the same type of um, shutdown method, like you said, like coming back? Yeah, everyone had their different ways of dealing with things, for sure. You know, yeah. physical activity was generally one for those guys. You know, they were, you know, incredibly fit guys, you know, mm. and it's... So, fitness is always a big thing and, mm. um, you know, the same with first responders, the humour mm. side of things. And um, But, yeah, I think everyone had a way mm. somehow. Had you changed when you came back? Uh, no, I don't think so. Mm. No, I don't think so. I mean, I come back with way more medic experience, yeah. but no, I don't think I changed. No, I didn't. Um, yeah, I think initially I would have loved to have gone back over there. I yeah. still hadn't met my now wife um, and had didn't have kids. So, yeah, I would have mm. probably happily gone back over. Mm. 
and then have the make the decision to go to what was it the ADF's counterterrorism team. That was just part of your rotation. So. Oh, so that was the next stage, wasn't it? Yeah. So when I got back, um, yeah, I jumped back into back onto tag on on um, team, and then did my underwater medics course, and then went back on team, and that's when I finished up. So yeah, um, yeah you just kind of rotate through that. Um, well, now you rotate, but yeah. Yeah. And then even in within that rotation time, did you change at all? Did you find yourself reflecting back on what you'd just been through? Um, yeah, I mean, during that time, I then would go into um, helping develop the pre-deployment for the rest of special operations. Because we Army had a 12-month gap there between special operations from our three rotations. Mm-hmm. Special ops just sort of withdrew, not withdrew, but they stayed out for about 12 months and then they went back in. So I would then sort of help mentor and train up all the guys going over there. So yeah, just trying to pass on whatever I could for the for the next lot of guys going over. Mm. So I do lots of training with for those guys. Do you think that even helped, even just the way that you could talk about it to to get it? Possibly, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you know you you're telling these guys in immense detail everything mm. you did and seen, and you know what you did wrong, what went well, um, trying to set them up best for their deployment. So. Yeah, I mean, definitely talking about it, I would say, would have a fair bit, you know, because you're not bottling it in. Mm. So Yeah, definitely. Mm. And then, so you stay with the, the ADF, the TAC group that you said. Yeah. Did you ever get deployed anywhere within? No, it was all, it was all domestic counterterrorism. Yeah. So everything was all within Australia. Sure. Hey all, just a quick ad to say thank you for taking the time to listen to the Fall Forward podcast. I'd encourage you to share this podcast and also give a five-star rating which will help connect this podcast to the rest of the world. If you'd like to support this podcast, then head over to patreon.com forward slash fall forward podcast. Any contribution would certainly help this show grow. Now let's get straight back into our conversation. And then the decision to leave. Yeah. What was that like? Um, for me, I'd done, I'd done my minimum six years. Mm. I was in my seventh year. Um, and I was 24, 24, going on 25. I was due for sergeant. I was probably at my max. I'd already had an extension on my posting to special operations, so I'd have to go back to a field hospital to get sergeant. And I was just too young. I love the medicine. And as you're a medic sergeant, you sort of go off the tools a fair bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the clinical work way too much and probably felt I was probably a bit young to hand, to get, you know, I was... Now looking back at it, I'd only just started learning. Yeah. Um, then learned to be finished the learning as yeah. a medic. So, um, yeah, for me it was time. You know, I'd been doing lots of ride-alongs with the the ambulance and just felt I was getting more serious with my wife, mm. or now wife. Um, so yeah, it was just time. For, it was just a natural progression to move on. I didn't get out disgruntled, or it was just time for a change and to to have that next goal. Sure. And did it ever? Uh, did you ever, when you were changing from an ADF, um, from being in the military to being in the paramedics, did you ever get into the mind frame of who am I and what am I? Cause no, it, I mean I had a two week gap, yeah. so I literally finished with army, had two weeks holidays, and then started with ambulance. Yeah. Um, so it was all you know. I was doing all my entry for the ambulance while still in the army. Sure. So no, I had, um, and I wouldn't have got out of the army had I not got a position in the ambulance. So yeah. it was a very planned uh, planned transition and i was speaking with an adf transition um officer re- uh, in canberra last weekend and that was something that uh, myself and a few of my colleagues were saying to her is that 
you know, for us, all three of us had very different careers, mm. but it was very well planned in what we we're going to do. We didn't just get out of the army and go, all right, now what am I going to do? Yeah. Because, you know, that's one, not me, but I think that's setting yourself up for failure, you know, and that's when I think you're going to have the identity issues yes. and, the, and um, you know, I can't back that up with any science. Or prof- mm. But for me, like, you needed to have a very well-planned transition. That certainly helped. Yeah, and I'd say that would be for any first response, not just defence, but if you're looking get from going from ambulance, police, fire, you know, I think you have to have a very well-planned transition to get out. Otherwise, I think, you know, all that shit you've done will catch up with you know catch mm. up because you've got no identity you know may not have an identity yeah feel like you don't have an identity yeah definitely which is what exactly they do say when you walk big away, time you yeah just don't know what you're part of anymore yeah. so yeah but it sounds like like you said because you were so planned yeah you were able to then go oh no i already know what i'm doing yes next week. Yeah. it's just a different uniform yeah. but it's yeah. a similar role it, well, and definitely very similar role um but yeah just different uniform mm. and then so the paramedics how did you go with the paramedics it was good. I mean, I loved my sort of career in the, the ambulance. There's definitely some pros and cons. I mean, mm. shift work is, I mean, I'm not a huge fan. I don't think many people are a huge fan of night shift. Mm. Um, but yeah, shift work's hard on relationships and health and fitness. It's easy to get into that, you know, to get away from fitness and eating poorly and things like that. Um, it was different from going from the military special operations to ambulance is a complete change in culture. So I did find that a little bit different. Um, you know, even in the in the army, if you didn't like someone, like you still wouldn't do it, like you still wouldn't go jack on them, we say. So you'd still kind of do what you had to do at work. Didn't mean you'd hang out with them after work or that you liked them, but you wouldn't backstab them. Mm. Whereas ambulance, especially like ambulance in the health profession can be quite catty. Mm. Um, so, you know, seeing that side of it was like, I suppose a little bit confronting sure. coming from army where you'd always try and help your mates out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was a little bit different, but yeah, generally it was a pretty easy transition. Mm-hmm. And then were you on the road solely two up majority of the time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd always worked. Um, yeah. When I got, especially when I did my intensive care, they pretty much got rid of the single response. Mm-hmm. Intensive care paramedics. And what areas were you? Uh, I did mostly Sydney, Wollongong. Okay. Yeah, yep. before Coffs Harbour. Mm-hmm. And then how did you go? What, what were events were you normally going to as a paramedic? Um, so everything from your nursing home transfers yep. to, um, you know, cardiac arrests and pedestrians hit and traumas and suicides and mental health and mm. whatever the spectrum. It certainly wasn't all blood and guts, you know, like you even when I was working on an intensive care car in Sydney, you know, you'd, you'd a lot of the time just go to unwell elderly, mm. you know, who can't cope like a, a younger person. Their body's just, you know, it's getting old. They can't fight the illness and diseases like, like a younger, healthy person can. So, um, yeah, a lot of it was that. Mm. And then you'd have sporadic, you know, intermittently you'd have the big, I suppose, the big jobs. And then how did you go even with that change? Obviously, seeing the blood and cuts to... You know, suicides and, and death and accidents. Yeah, for me, I mean, the trauma was kind of second nature, mm. especially coming from the army where that's pretty much all you do to ambulance, which is not all you do. Yeah. So for me, the trauma was easy. Like it was just second nature to me. Um, all the complex medical conditions was very challenging for me because it was still, I hadn't had the exposure um, to that or as much exposure. Um, but yeah, then you had the mental health and the drugs and the, the alcohol um 
Yeah, so that was definitely a, an eye-opener. Mm, and even with the, the complicated medical issues, how mm. did you go confronting your obviously lack of understanding with that? Um, you know, initially it was just having the self-awareness to know that you don't know it all and mm. to try and learn, you know, so learn off the senior paramedics um, to learn when you take, you know, take your patient to hospital and triage and the doctors, you know, to, um, to, to try and absorb as much information and ask them the questions to learn. Mm. Um, just be on that quest to learn all the time was, was big for me. Like it was really, mm. really important that I learned those things because that was my weakness. Yeah. Yeah, which is really good that you actually understood your weakness and then you knew how to build on it. Mm. But from the whole time I've ever known you, I would never say that the word ego has gotten uh, ever, anywhere close to you. Mm. Is that something you'd say does get in the way of some people and their ability to grow? Oh, definitely. Sometimes you, um, you know, sometimes you do think you know it all. I think sometimes you just have that an event that shows you that you don't. Um, and I think you always need to be learning. And I think someone said to me early early on in my career, you know, the time that you stop learning is the time you need to leave. And it's not because you you can't be learning, it's because you've kind of chosen that you don't want to learn mm. anymore. So, um, yeah, for me, it's always just wanting to learn more and more. I don't think that's stopped now, even though I've yeah. left ambulance. Yeah. yeah. How did you go dealing with all those different incidents, like your suicides and your, mm. your multiple fatalities and stuff like that? How did you go personally with those? Yeah, like I said, I never lost a night's sleep mm. um, to any of those. And there's certainly things, you know, so people who'd been, you know, intentionally thrown themselves in front of trains or jumped off buildings in the city and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, they're quite gory, but never really affected. Like hangings, like I just don't. And I actually went three years in the ambulance without seeing a hanging. Wow. And then I got posted down to Wollongong to do my intensive care and I had three in a week. Mm-hmm. And then I had... And then it just kind of started to continue after, maybe after I'd done my intensive care because you're going to these type of jobs more mm. often. Um, yeah, so for me, hangings is just something that, they're just not a nice job for mm. me. Like, I don't think for anybody, but particularly for me, like I'd, just, I'd much rather go to someone who's jumped in front of a truck or a train. Did you notice a change in yourself with those jobs? Yeah, so instead of, you know, in the early days, you'd try and expose yourself to some of the things. You'd want to see these big jobs and stuff like that or... You know, you'd um, you know maybe you'd take a probe in to see a dead body to get them used to it, but then after those, you like, I think you wouldn't expose yourself any more than you had to. Um, you know, you didn't want to. Like, I'd seen hundreds of dead bodies over mm. the last fifteen years. Like, why would I want to see any more? And I think for me, it's just wanting to like I'm not broken, and you think what what is that one thing that's maybe going to top me over? So you were at that level. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I was like never lost a night's sleep and I'm like I want to continue like this so I wouldn't expose my things self to anything more than I had to yeah, yeah. which sure. is fantastic that you even had that awareness mm-hmm. is that just something you would just like you said it just seems like you always seem to have that conscious awareness so. oh, I think it's just because you see guys you know you see guys that do go down that you just wouldn't expect you know mm-hmm. that they'd been doing it you, know, you see people that you know in their first 12 months they would get PTSD or they'd be exposed to something and set them off um, but then you'd see guys who have been in the job for 30 years and they're just the happiest guys you've ever seen. Mm. Or they're 30 years, the happiest guy, and then suddenly something and they're, and now they're really struggling. So it's just really, I suppose, being more exposed to those guys and seeing and talking about certain things. And you just realize you, you, nobody's bulletproof. Mm. So you know, don't pretend you're bulletproof. Is, um, yeah, I think ego is an enemy if you think you can handle all this 
you know, I think lots of people can show you that you can't. So don't, yeah, for me, I don't know, it's just working out that I don't want to be exposed to everything because who knows what he's going to tip me off. Mm. And that was the same with physical injuries as well. Yeah. You know, I'd be a lot more careful about how I lifted things or, you know, things like I wouldn't try and catch people if they were pretending to faint and things like Because, you know, what's, you see some, one, that one back injury or something that is just career ending, you know. So, um, yeah, really tried to look after myself physically and mentally. So were you, at the time, were you doing more physical activity? Was that, did you see yourself as doing it? Maybe as probably, the, probably the opposite, Lindsay, I suppose, you know, giving, having, uh, you know, having young kids, mm. shift work, starting up a business on the side, yeah. I was probably the most unhealthy physically I'd ever been. Okay. Um, and maybe it was just realizing, hey, I'm, I'm not fit. Yeah. So if I do try and carry someone, you know, further than I should or yeah. try and catch someone when, I, when I'm not at my physical best, then I'm definitely going to get hurt. Sure. So, yeah, really just trying to protect your, and especially it, your back, you know, back and shoulders is something the ambos are always doing, you know. Yeah, and it goes back to your awareness, two mm. things. Was it ever a case, and I know we've spoken about it before, the growth options when you go to something horrible, mm. did you, were you aware that you were doing that mental approach in regards to how can I grow from this, how can I learn from it? No, well, I mean, always trying to learn from things, you know, when you go to jobs. But no, in terms of like the post-traumatic growth, I think, um, you know, a friend of a good friend and, and work colleague, Dr. Dan Pronk's massive on this post-traumatic growth. And, mm. you know, for me, it was always, I've always had that next thing I'm striving for. Um, whether I can achieve it or not, it's a different story, but it's always got to have that next goal or something I'm growing towards. And so, you know, you, you are exposed and looking back and you think about the hundreds of jobs you go to, like there's some terrible shit you've been to. Mm. Um, but it's really, you know, it's having your own coping mechanisms. But for me, it's always having that next thing, you know, it's always from army, it's been um, to do my, you know, the top clinical course. And then it was the counterterrorism, And then, then it was to get in the ambulance. And then from ambulance was an intensive care. And then I started a business and then, then you want to grow the business. And so it's, always having some form of goal or target to go and to grow towards. And were you actually setting these goals for yourself for no, the future? Or was just no, not, not um, you know, I was setting it, you know, I knew what I wanted to do, but I had no, you know, I wasn't going, all right, I'm now stale. I need to, and having a piece of paper and planning it because if I don't, I might go downhill. No, it was just, I don't know, always having to be busy, always having to do something or to grow, mm, really, mm, yeah. Mm. And then... So you start your own business up and I think you said you started in the garage. Is that right? Yeah, just now. We had a sunroom. So we had a spare room in our house down in Sydney. So yeah, just between shifts, we'd run in this business out of our spare room. Yeah. And then uh, then we made the move up the coast and then we're running it out of the in-laws garage. And then we sort of well and truly took over his garage and then we had to move to a little mezzanine, little rental and then, and now it's a 400 square meter warehouse. So, so tell us about that decision to leave you know again another mm. comfortable when i say comfortable you know you've got yeah. your pay coming in every 100%. week it's been 10 years yeah that i've got to turn up on these days and yeah. these days off yeah what was that decision like to you even know, leave I, I would say harder than sure. afghanistan or anything like it's you, you know when you talk about security there's not too many go like jobs that are more secure than a government mm. job especially ambulance i mean as long as there's as long as people are getting old and there's still alcohol, mm. then that job's secure forever. Um, and you are, you're on a good, you know, you're on a really good wage to, to do that as well. So that was a tough decision to 
to transition out. But again, it was very planned. Um, I didn't just one day go, oh, I've had enough of this shit and I'm going to then just do business full time. Um, you know, I went job share part time and then I went casual and, you know, I'd made sure the business was well and truly sustainable before making those decisions as well. So that happened over 18 months to two years to do that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's very well planned that that transition to get out for sure. Mm-hmm. What was keeping you up at night? As I said, I've never lost a night's sleep from any of the, the medical jobs I've been to, but fucking business, I've lost plenty of nights sleep. Yeah, because it's not just about me. And I'm not worried that if, I mean, I'm not worried if, don't get me wrong, I don't want the business to fall through tomorrow. Yep. But if it is, I'm confident that I'll have the security and the, the skills that I can go out and do something else and get another job. Um, but it's not just about me anymore. You know, it's about, I have, I've got 13 other families of employees. people that are work employees. Yep. Yep. So, you know, they, you know, their houses, their livelihoods rely on our business. So, um, for me, that is more stressful than anything I've done in war or on road as a paramedic. Yeah, so for how do sure. you cope with that? Oh, sometimes better than, <laughs> you know, like it's just, again, like it's just, um, you know, trying to plan things, you know, having, you know, primary goal, an alternative, a contingency, and then maybe an emergency sort of fallback plan. Um, but yeah, lots of planning, drive, hustle, you know, but, you know, I would hate to think what the hourly rate of a business owner or an entrepreneur is, you know, when you look at the hours that you, that you do. And um, yeah, but you just, you know, again, you just, I try to only stress about things that I can change. Hmm. You know, if something sometimes shit happens, you don't see it happening. It just kind of comes out of the blue. And whilst it might suck, you just sometimes go, "Well, I can't, I can't change that. How can I make it not happen again?" Hmm. And it's just again, just trying to plan out that future to not make the. You know, if it happens a second or third time, you're an idiot. It's hmm. not something that's just happening, and even you haven't changed or modified what you're doing. So, yeah, again, just just try and plan everything going forward not try and stress about what I can't change mm. which I'm definitely not perfect at yep. but you just try and put that into perspective yep. and then if, if you had someone on your front doorstep now and they were thinking about that transition from anything yep. to something completely different like what yep. advice would you be giving them I think just plan everything you know sit down and work out I like to reverse engineer things so I look at where I want to be and then how can I get there you know, what steps do I have to make? And then having a bit, you know, you can't have a backup plan every time, but if this doesn't go well, right, what can I do, you know? So um, if my business doesn't take off in 12 months, you know, what's my fallback plan? Mm. You know, can I move in with the in-laws or can I just pick up some second in- secondary income while mm. I'm still pushing this through and um, all those type of things. So just really plan out what, Reverse engineer what you want to do. You know, if you want to make a hundred grand a year, well, what do you need to do to make that hundred grand a year? You know, mm-hmm. so break down your monthly, fortnightly, weekly income, and just try and just plan. Where did that model come from? I don't know. I certainly didn't make it up. Mm. Um, I know lots of people. You know, I suppose that's how a lot of products are made as well. You know, they get a product that's out there and they pull it apart to see how it's made, and then they'll see how they can make it better and then build it up from there. So, yeah, I think we can do similar to our life. You know, it's the same if you want to run a marathon. You don't just go and run a marathon. You break down, well, this is when the, the race is. You know, how many, this is a bit of a training plan. I need to break it down. You break it down into small steps. It's mm. all planned. 
nobody, most, you know, 99.8% of people can't just go out and run a marathon. Mm. You need to plan and train for it. And I think transitioning or going at, from first responder or military or anything is the same thing. Just break down those goals and, and work towards it. Yeah. Have you ever made a decision so quick that you just went, geez, that wasn't within the plan? Uh, I, I mean, I make plans all the time off my gut, mm. but generally it's, you know, I've got experience in that area or it just feels so right. But no, I think most of the time it's, you've got to plan it. Like I'm terrible that I won't plan it on paper. Mm. Um, Where is it? It's just all, I suppose, in my mind, you know, okay. like it's, I never really switch off the mind. So okay. it's, um, and I am getting better. So well, I'm not getting better, I'm just getting better at how I do things. So I've now got a general manager who, you know, he's very strategic and planned and black and white on paper and risk adverse. So it's kind of, Balancing, you know, again, having that self-awareness to go, that is my weakness. Mm. Um, I probably can't fix a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So I can get someone who is naturally good at it and Mm. try and and work together. And we haven't talked about your business yet, but again, we've had this discussion before, the fact that you start this business and then you go, geez, you know what I do? And again, it goes back to your awareness. I need someone else to run the business or be that general manager. Mm. What was that like? I mean, I, I knew probably 18 months ago, but just didn't have the cash to do it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, it's just working out, you know, again, what what am I good at and knowing what you're good at and what you're not. And then the stuff that you're not good at, you need to work out, you know, can I fix this or should I fix it as well? I mean, sometimes I probably could fix it, but why would I when I can get someone who's naturally 10 times better at it than I am? They enjoy it. Um, so why would I put my effort in towards that where I could maybe 10x the stuff that I'm good at? Yeah. So, you know, certainly now in, in business, I'll try and hire people that are way better at whatever I'm getting them than, than I am. You mm. know, they've got more experience, more knowledge, more passion in that certain area. Um, you know, whether it's like the finance side of it as well, you know, like it's, I'm not a numbers guy, so why would I, you know, I could I could go and study and do some more financial um, courses and things like that, mm. but I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not naturally good at it. Mm. So why would I put all my efforts into something like that where there's people out there that just love numbers? Mm-hmm. So I'd be better off just getting them to come on board. So mm. that's what I try and do now. So tell us about TACMED Australia. Yeah, so TACMED is essentially a first aid company that, specializes in bringing the lessons we learned from the battlefield and to teach them to our first responders. So probably most of our, uh, you know, most of our clients at the moment are police around Australia. Um, And then we'll do lots of equipment as well. So we do the equipment training and consultancy in any sort of first aid in high threat environments is what we, we specialize in. So your the difference between, you know, your average Joe Blow getting their first aid compared to what you're doing, what's the difference there? So when you, when, we, when you run a nationally accredited first aid course, you have to meet a bunch of criteria set out by um, the regulatory body, ASQA, mm. um, which is certainly necessary in some parts. But when we look at police officers, the jobs that they go to on a day-to-day basis, I mean, they're not going to majority of stuff that they cover in a first aid course. So we sort of bridge that gap between that military medicine and the first aid. So we'd like to teach the things like you know, proper major bleeding control, so arterial tourniquets and wound packing and things like that. We'll talk about penetrating injuries from stab wounds and gunshot wounds. 
Um, we'll talk about the mindset and the stuff that goes into dealing with patients in a high threat environment. And that's just not covered in normal first aid. And it's just not appropriate that people who are out there in a high threat environment are doing the same course and carrying the same equipment that an office worker is carrying. Mm. So that's where we sort of, one, we love, like we're passionate about, but that's, I just think, a huge gap mm. and something we've been trying to fill for the last few years. And, and the business, where's the business moving to? What's the, the latest technology? Uh, lots of different areas. Um, one we're focusing on the moment is virtual reality. Yeah. Uh, again, because we can't be everywhere at once, our instructors, you know, and we are starting to lose some of that corporate knowledge. There's not a lot of war going on at the moment. So we're not sort of having that next bunch of really experienced medics that have been to the Iraqs and Afghanistans and whatnot. Um, and, and it's just a time and money factor. Like, you know, New South Wales police aren't going to release 16,000 police officers to come to our course. You know, we've only got a core bunch of maybe like 12 to 20 instructors for all of Australia. So they can't be everywhere at once. So how can we get the same level of consistent training um, and training that's really, you know, high fidelity stress inoculation type training? Um, and the answer is technology is going to help us help us with that. So VR is something we're focusing on the moment, which is pretty, pretty exciting. Tell us about the VR that you've got. So, um, so we make sort of bespoke scenarios for whatever organisation. So, like one of the scenarios we got, so we've recreated the incident in Burke Street. Now, you think of that incident where a guy's driven his car down one of the main streets of a city and injured so many people. I mean, that's probably not even a once-in-a-career job for most first responders. You know, a lot of first responders will never go to a job where, mm. you know, six people are being killed and 26 critically injured. And, and you know, touch wood, hopefully they don't. But, you know, how do you train for that? And then not only that, but how, how they, if they go to that, how are they going to be affected later on? So with virtual reality, we can put them in a scaled crawl, walk, run in a scenario like that, that it's immensely realistic, incredibly immersive. Um, and so we can put them and train them in a very safe environment in an office. So, but it's just on a computer. So you can put, you know, every cop or ambo or fiery before a shift can do 15 minutes of this incredibly complex scenario in a computer before any shift. So you imagine doing hours of that, then the idea is that if you ever have to respond to these complex jobs, you're going to be better equipped mentally, um, you're going to perform better and hopefully you're going to be far more resilient going on, going forward as well. Because so. it certainly would take away that, that uh, notion of, I wonder how I'm going to act. Because now I've suddenly seen it through yeah. the virtual reality. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then recalling, obviously, back to that. Oh, big time. I mean, you can record the scenario so you can go back over and watch what you've done. And there's nothing better to learning than when you make mistakes. So if you make a mistake in a computer game, then that's where you it's, it's, it. it's not going it, to, I shouldn't say game, but in the scenario, it's not affecting anybody, but mm. you've learned. So you can then press reset and you can go through and you, you can do that exact same scenario, but do it better. And so once you have a bank of scenarios, you can then learn so much by making mistakes and just resetting. And it's just constant exposure too. I mean, you're being exposed to these really stressful events. Then hopefully use your adrenaline and your fight and flight in a safe environment. So when you get on the streets, you're going to be far better prepared to do it. Mm. And the response when people have used it, what have they said? Like, I love watching people take off the headset and just seeing their face and their eyes when... You know, they can't believe what they've just done in a scenario and how realistic it is and how much they're, you know, some people are sweating, their heart rates are high just from a scenario in, in a set of VR goggles. So, 
you, you know, they can just see their mind ticking over on, you know, if they have this at work and what they can do mm. once they're exposed to this. Yeah, it's amazing. So, and that's going to continue to develop? Oh, again, yeah, more and more. You know, we've got our first client over in the US um, to date now and um, we've got lots of clients that we're working with now to, to get it up and running. Mm. And your socials, where can people find you? Uh, so, Facebook, Instagram is our two that we're on a fair bit. YouTube, we've got lots of how-to videos and stuff on YouTube, um, all just search TACMED Australia. Yeah, so what's on YouTube? So your exposure in regards to certain things? Is it yeah, so we've got um, arterial tourniquets, we've got snake bites, bleeding control, we've got everything sort of around medic stuff. We do a lot of how-to videos yep. um, on YouTube. We're just showing them through kit. So I think we've got about 30 or so videos on YouTube. Wow, that's yep. good. Yeah. I'll run you through a couple of final questions. And, a, and our podcast, The Modern Medic. Oh, yes, actually. We didn't talk about yeah, that. The yeah, modern, The Modern Medic. Tell so, us about your podcast. So it's just a, uh, a podcast for, um, I call them The Modern Medic. So mm. it's it's not just an actual paramedic or military medic. It uh, can be ever who, whoever that first person or that first responder is on scene that is providing that initial medical care. Any, any person. Any person, yeah. Yep. Mainly for, you know, like as I suppose a first responder, I sort of talk a little bit of the humor and sort of, uh, you know, talk that you've had some form of exposure um, to the medical environment. But yeah, like, you know, whether you're a basic first aider or a doctor, there's content sort of for everyone there. Sure, sure. And how how is the podcast going? It's good. I mean, I'm only new to it as well. So I think we've got six or so episodes. So um, yeah, it's getting better. I think I'm getting better at it. But yeah, again, it's just I and mean, I don't listen to the radio in the car. If I'm driving, I'm listening to podcasts. Podcast, so yeah. I think podcasts are just the way to the mm. way to go. And that's through you search Podcast Australia too for that for your podcast. Yeah, so we're on yeah the Modern Medic. Yeah, and that's on yeah I think it's on all the platforms. So it's on um, it's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. Yeah, and Google. Yeah, do they still have a Google? Might be on Google. Might be on I Google. think it's on about eight or nine different platforms. Yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. this one's on, it's on the yeah, same platform. yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 So final couple of questions, mate. Shoot. When people tell me to do something, I do what? Ooh. It's people or your wife? <laughs> <laughs> less for the safety. Yeah, let's just say when it's other people. When it's other people, I just think about uh, if I want to do it now. Yeah. Yes, I suppose I'm getting better at saying no. <laughs> so when, when someone tells you not to do something, yeah. where do you think that's coming from? I think some people just don't like getting out of their comfort zone. Yes. Um, and so, you know, in human nature that we don't like change. And whereas I like to look at change as an opportunity a lot of the time. So you never know where it's going to take you. Um, so, yeah, if it's not a blatantly stupid idea, yep. I, I normally go with whatever my gut tells me. Yep. Yeah. Uh, to be vulnerable is to be... I think vulnerability is really important mm. these days as well. Um, you know, I think being very transparent and open about what you're thinking and why and and not having the ego to not let, you know, to say, you know, that mo- emotions may be involved and that, you know, someone's, someone's upset you or vice versa, that you're super proud of them, then I think, you know, vulnerability is really, really important to our... Um, connection as humans as well as our mental health like even just hearing this story and obviously i've known you for a little bit the story sounds like so dramatic it could be in a book for just what you've lived Mm. but you don't see yourself like that do you Nah, not at all no like i'm just a normal guy yeah 
that I don't think anybody that hasn't been in EMI positions wouldn't, wouldn't do the same or hasn't done the same. Mm. What's adversity to you? Uh, adversity is just when, the, you know, when things don't go you know, your way um, and then you do have to push yourself further and out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, whether that's you know, a job, not getting the job that you wanted, uh, which has definitely happened to me multiple times. Mm. Um, it's been able to push through that to see the light at the end of the tunnel and just keep to work through it really. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have daily habits that you try and get yourself into a certain routine? Uh, no, I think my habits, my daily habits change a fair bit. Um, certainly, I had times there where I was doing some, um, I had a really set, uh, I was having a pretty tough time. Um, and so I set a morning routine where I'd get up pretty early in the morning. Um, I'd just have like a, a coffee. I'd do 10 minutes of some physical, ex- you know, some burpees and push-ups and sit-ups. Um, do some meditation for 10 minutes um, and then read a book before mm. looking at a phone or anything like that. Um, and I found that a really good start in the morning and I don't know why I moved away from it. Yeah. There's probably kids messing up your morning routine. Yep. Um, but no, my, my morning routine changes a fair bit, but it, it normally revolves around um, some reading mm. of some form. And does that find that you calm down, that you switch into a certain... Yeah, way? I think it just switches your brain on, gets, yeah. your, gets your brain moving and some physical exercise. I'm certainly not training as much as I want to, but doing some form of physical exercise whether some push-ups sit-ups burpees or you know if you're more inclined going for a decent run or the mm. gym or something like that mentally do you notice a difference when it's big time yeah if i don't work out for a while then like i definitely feel my energy levels and um i get a bit more stress than i normally would or definitely what about the mood at home does that change um yeah for sure if you're you know if you don't do that physical activity you definitely i think i definitely know noticing the mood mm. at home you know you just snap at the kids more often than you would and all the misses. Yeah. Yeah, so I definitely, um, once you get back into some more exercise and whatnot, then mm. feel you a better human. What inspires you? Oh, good question. Um, for me, it's, I don't really have any heroes or anything like that. I, I just, for me, um, people who can push themselves out of their comfort zone they can do the hustle and the work and they can get through the the tough times to, to meet a goal. And that can be anything, um, whether it's a good friend who's running some ultra marathons or someone who's just done their um, like study to do an MBA um, whilst working shift work in a young family. Like that's pretty inspiring to be able to do your MBA when, mm. with a young family yeah. and, and shift, shift work. work. So I find that inspiring. People who you know have started multi-million and billion-dollar businesses from nothing, like the, I just find that pretty inspirational. Yeah. But no, I don't really have any heroes or anything that I go. But it's just people like that. Yeah, that have a similar yeah, drive to you for sure. Yeah, yeah. Last question, mate. What is it to be, or how would you describe resiliency? So resilience for me is being able to realize maybe you haven't got the the, the best deck or something's gone wrong. Um, not the best deck, the best hand, you know. Mm. Um, when things are going wrong is to have their drive to push through it, um, to make good of what's not, you know, something that's gone bad, you know, to, to you know, realise that, hey, this is wrong or this is bad, um, but what do I need to do 
to push forward and just to push yourself to get through it, to make to make good of what's bad, to me is resilience. Yeah. Mate, thanks so much for coming through. My pleasure. Uh, on the podcast. You're, you're definitely your awareness um, and even just to the point of your goal setting and you know, your ability to go, well, if that's my goal, then how do mm-hmm. I get there? That's certainly come through. And let alone, mate, like I said before, there is no ego to this, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, personally, I think this is mm-hmm. why you are where you are today. So thanks for coming on to no, the right, podcast. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jeremy Holder. Please check out his social networks at TACMED Australia. What I picked up in this interview are some things that Jeremy has been through and the benefit there that he discussed in regards to debriefing, going through horrible situations, but having that opportunity to speak, to speak out, to have support networks, to engage in conversation about what you're going through and not to bottle it up. Also too, what I liked about Jeremy and the way that he pushes forward is that it's a planned approach. It's not chasing the next thing. He sets big goals for himself and then he dissects it and he says, well, how can I get to that goal? What are the stages I need to get through? Another thing that you would have heard is how aware Jeremy is of his self and his lack of ego. And I believe that sometimes this gets in the way of either our pride on making decisions and it becomes an obstacle to where we want to go or to where we want to push ourselves. You can head over to our socials and open up, introduce yourself and talk about a situation that you've been through and where you opened up and where you had the support and you talked about a situation, the debrief model. And where you think you may have been had you not had that exposure in regards to opening up. What I'm trying to encourage people to do is open up when they go through situations. To help support the podcast, please rate and share. And you can head over to patreon.com forward slash fall forward podcast and help sponsor the podcast. Listen now for a teaser of our next episode. The nurse didn't call me back. It was the doctor who did. And that was a single phone call that changed my life because he said, I don't know what you have, but we aren't equipped to deal with it at this hospital. You can subscribe to this podcast by hitting subscribe now or find more information at our website, www.fallforward.com.au or check out and join our Facebook group at Fall Forward Podcast. Every person has a story. Every person has the potential. Fall forward.